Okay, we want to welcome you all back to Kingdom 101. And once again, not just those who are gathered here physically, but also those who are listening in. We want to say a warm welcome to you and we thank you for journeying. Thank you for journeying with us. We are in Matthew chapter 8 as well as chapter 9. You know, we have journeyed quite a bit through this Kingdom Aligning Initiative called Kingdom 101, wanting to get into Kingdom Foundations so that it will help us in our own Kingdom assignments. So if you have been journeying and following us, you know that in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, Jesus demonstrates the authority of the Kingdom as well as He trains His disciples. There are 10 miracles that are recorded in these two chapters and we are now exploring the very first three in Matthew chapter 8, verses 2 to 17. And as we have learned, the healing of the leper last week, that's what the lesson was all about. It's more than just a physical healing. There was a deeper lesson that we learned about what was clean, what is unclean. And beyond just that physical healing or a physical restoration, the king himself desires to restore his kingdom community. He wants to make clean all who are unclean, and as God's people, we are reminded that we are also to remain clean and holy before Him. That was the lesson that we learned from the healing of the leper. But the question we ask is, does this only apply to God's people, right? When we talk God's kingdom community, we will look at people who are believers, people who are of the covenant. This lesson this evening we actually move from an unclean leper and the focus shifts to a Gentile, one who is considered uh, racially and ethnically unclean, not considered God's people. The last lesson was a leper that belonged to the people of Israel, but tonight we will see it is a Gentile. And again, although it is a story or a miracle about healing, there is something more than meets the eye. So let's read the passage, let's pray, and then we'll unpack today's teaching verse by verse. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does this. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very same hour. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you for Scripture always, Lord. It's not just a book that we read, not a story that we enjoy only, but Lord, it is truth, it is spirit, it is a life. And so this evening I pray, Holy Spirit, will you come upon the declaration of the word of the kingdom? I pray, Lord, that you will be with me, Lord, your servant, as you have enabled me to prepare. Will you help me, Lord, so that I will share this correctly and accurately? I pray for the hearts of everyone listening in. Lord, don't let it just be another thing that we learn, Lord. I pray that you will, you will cut deep within all of us, Lord, that we will be convicted, we will be stirred, we will be encouraged, oh Lord, and we will be moved, Lord, by your grace, your goodness, Lord, and your power and your authority. And so we commit this time to you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the passage that we have just read, there is a parallel story or passage in the book of Luke. So we will refer to that, but if you are taking notes, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10 will be the reference that you want to take note. Now we know it's a story revolving around or involving this person, a Roman centurion. 
So before we get into the study proper, I think it's good to know a little bit about centurions so that we understand a social context, a cultural context. Who are these guys? What does he stand for? What does he do? You can see that a Roman centurion is a, a military commander. He commanded a century, and that's why he's called a centurion. He commanded a century of roughly 80 soldiers. Now, usually people will tell you it's about 100 soldiers. That's why it has a century. But as I read the commentaries, they seem to agree that it's about 80 soldiers. One legion contains 10 cohorts. Each cohort contains six centuries. And so in a Singapore context, if we want to have a parallel or understand it a little bit better, it would be like a company commander, an OC. Right? An OC would command about 100 plus people in the Singapore army. A centurion would be promoted from the rank and file. You don't just go in and apply and say, I want to be a centurion. It doesn't work that way. He's got to get in as a soldier and he will be promoted accordingly because only those of uh, aristocratic background, they can go straight to become a, a tribunal or, or something that's much higher. Okay? So this guy can't pull strings. He's got to serve from the bottom and slowly work his way up. Now, in this time of the Roman Empire, we are told that soldiers serve for a contract of about 20 years. That's what they sign up for, 20 years as soldiers. And we thought two and a half years was bad. <laughs> and when you reach a centurion level, you are considered like, you know, in the olden days, uh, the knights. Uh? You, you reach a certain level of a knight class. So he's a military commander. He has gone through the paces. Now, to be a centurion, you must also be a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, you are expected to also participate in pagan religious oaths to the divine emperor, Caesar. And Caesar is regarded as a god. So just imagine, huh? a centurion, this is what they have to go through. They've got to go through the paces. After that, you know, because they're Roman citizens, they worship Caesar as if he's God, he's divine. And so they participate in all these religious activities. Now, down on the ground, they're not seen in very good light by the Jews. You know that the Jews were a conquered people. It was the Roman Empire at that point in time. And so most of the interaction that the Jews had with the Romans would be the soldiers that patrolled that region, that were placed over them. And usually it would be a negative experience. And so the Jews were raised to hate the Romans. Every time they saw a Roman soldier, oh man, you know, it wasn't a nice thing. It was, it was a negative experience. Because the soldiers would either ill-treat them or force them to do things that they don't want to do. So can you imagine when Jesus says, you know, when you're asked to go a second mile, Right? Go that extra mile. He was referring to this culture, this norm. The soldiers, by law, they can make you carry their things for one mile. But Jesus is saying, don't just carry one mile. Go the second mile. Do extra for all these things. Jesus says, love your enemies. I mean, who were the enemies? The Roman centurions and the Roman soldiers. Can you just imagine? This is the context. When you read this story and you have this Roman centurion come and approach Jesus, this is the second miracle that, that Matthew records. It's amazing. It involves a, a Gentile, a pagan, and an enemy of the Jews. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. Right? Sometimes when we just read a story like this, we say, oh, okay, you know, he comes and he requests. That's all. This is a person that the Jews hate. And Matthew brings it into the focus of that. So now that we understand this background, we are ready to learn more about our King and the Kingdom of God. I've chosen to share with you at least four main points, four key points as we draw from this passage. And I think it will help us to appreciate if we were the centurion, if we were Jesus, seeing from Jesus' point, what is the whole thing that surrounds this whole story? So let's look at the first point. I call it approach. How did the centurion approach Jesus? What was his demeanor? What was his attitude? And if we, our hearts would be open, I believe we can learn something in the way that we also approach Jesus, our King, our God. 
So Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. And he was saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Now we can see in that language, I mean, there's a certain desperation, right? But if you understand as what we have gone through, his background, his status, his rank, I believe there was a certain humility about this guy. He's a military leader with, with a lot of influence. He could have just pulled rank. He could have just summoned someone to just pull Jesus along, but he didn't do all that. He comes, he pleads with Jesus. He didn't coerce Jesus to go the extra mile. He didn't do all that thing. The next thing we see about his humility that we can observe is he didn't come for himself. He was doing this for his servant. Now let's do a little bit of a digression down here. We're not sure whether his servant was Jew or Gentile. Usually servants would be of a conquered race. So it could have been a Jew or it could have been a Gentile from somewhere else. Or it could even have been a Roman citizen where that servant could be just an intern learning to be a soldier. So he might be attached to this uh, more senior officer and he's learning. So we, we don't really know the race or the background of this person. But we do know that centurions were not permitted to have legal families because at any time they would be posted to any place. They may be moved from legion to legion, and you move from uh, one place, the Roman Empire, to another. And so they, they were not supposed to have legal families, as it were, that they can serve with greater focus without being distracted. So the servant could be his only family. And so we understand that he, he comes not for himself, he comes for someone else. That's the second thing we see. The third thing, we also know actually he had a good standing. Amongst the Jews, although the Jews would consider these soldiers as enemies, he had a good standing with the Jews. Now, how do we know this? Because we have a parallel passage in Luke chapter 7, where in chapter 7 verse 4 of Luke, it says that he sends these elders to petition Jesus for Jesus to come to his place to heal the servant. And they begged Jesus earnestly, and they said that, this is one for whom Jesus should do this because he was deserving. Why? Because he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. Okay, so these elders come to Jesus and he says, Jesus, can you come? I mean, he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. I mean, he has served us well. So we see a few things down here. He's built a synagogue, i.e., he's got financial means. He's a fairly well-to-do guy, and centurions are paid a lot better than a rank-and-file soldier. What we don't know is the motive. We don't know whether he supported the synagogue or the Jews to buy some favor. Was he really sincere? Did he really love the people? Or was it purely political? So we can think about this. You know, we can ask some questions. All we know is that the elders, the Jewish elders, linked his love. He says, they say that he loved our nation. They linked his love and the works with how he was deserving of Jesus' attention. Now, when I read this, I smile. Because have we not heard something like that in the church before? Sometimes in the church, in the work of the ministry, we hear things like that. Oh, be nice to this guy. Lah. You know, he's been in the church a very long time, you know. Or don't, don't cause any offense uh, because this person uh, is a very good giver, you know. If you offend this person, uh, then what if he brings his tithe somewhere else? Have we heard something like that before, right? So it's, it's possible that way. And Matthew was just recording these things. You are left to your own sanctified imagination to see how you want to conclude. But personally, I doubt if the centurion instructed the elders to mention his own credentials to Jesus. It will become evident in a, in a very, very short while. My point is that he had a good standing with the Jews. The Jews are appreciative of him. But you see, the, the centurion, I don't think he, he did not use this to, to carry extra favor from Jesus. That was not his point. He came pleading and he had respect in his voice and in his tone. Because when he approached Jesus, he addressed Jesus as Lord, which can simply mean, at one end, he just says, Sir, right? 
and for a centurion who is an officer level to approach someone with that kind of a title, that shows that he respects Jesus. It can mean sir. Or it can also be at the other extreme, even a deity. The word Lord can also refer to a deity. So once again, all these are just nuances in the language. We can't really tell. All we know is that he had a good standing, but he did not use it for extra favors. How did he approach Jesus? I believe he approached with true humility. Now, what is true humility? True humility is having an an accurate assessment of yourself. True humility is not trying to put yourself down. Say, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm no good, I'm no good. You, know, uh, you, know, you just keep pushing yourself down. I don't think he did it that way, okay? He knew where he was. Now, let me explain. The scripture tells us he recognized his own position. He knew he was a Gentile. He understood the culture of that day. He was a Gentile, and Jews were not to have contact or have table fellowship with the Gentiles. The Jews considered the Gentiles unclean. And that this might even explain why Luke recorded in this way that the, the, the centurion sent the elders rather than he himself going to plead. Because he knows that he can't come into contact with a Jew, let alone a rabbi or a teacher. Right? And so Luke might have recorded this way, instead of him personally approaching, it's not because he was proud that he didn't want to go, but because he knew his position. He knew that he was a Gentile and he's not supposed to break this cultural taboo. And so he says, will you petition for me? Will you go for me? Because you are Jews and you can talk. And then later on, you know, I will, I will do what I need to do. And I like the way Matthew records, you know, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 7, that phrase, Jesus said to him, after he says, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. You notice he, he doesn't say anything there, right? Jesus then says, I will come and heal him. Now, it's interesting, when you do a study and you're reading certain commentaries, those who are Greek scholars, they they see the emphasis in the Greek language that places the emphasis on the word I. And this line can be translated from a sentence to a question. And that question would read, shall I come and heal him? You know, Jesus is saying, okay, so you're telling me this. What are you asking? Are you asking me to come? You know, versus he he presents the the condition and Jesus immediately volunteers, I will come and heal him. So presumptuously. And this again gives us and sheds light uh, and gives us a better picture of the centurion because Jesus is now testing this person. So what, what are you asking? Are you asking me to come? Shall I come? And that makes the barrier even more distinct. You might be thinking, oh, you mean what? Jesus is so mean one. No, no, no. Jesus is not mean. He knows the culture and he's testing the heart of this person's response. Do you remember there was another story of a Syrophoenician woman where her daughter was demon-possessed and she comes and she begs Jesus and Jesus said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then she came and worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered again and he says, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Ayo, this kind of language. You know, Jesus can call people little dogs. Ah. Right? Ah? And then she said, Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. See, Jesus was just trying to establish, you know, there's a, there's a Jew and Gentile divide. How are you responding, Right? How would you respond if I would give you this little barrier? And the centurion's answer was amazing, right? He says, I am not worthy. Now, he says, I'm not worthy. So the question is now, so was the centurion deserving or was he undeserving? The elders say, look, he deserves it. He says, I don't deserve it. The elders seem to think because he built us a synagogue, you know, so he is worthy. But this guy comes and he says, I am not worthy worthy. And I think there's a lesson down here for us all to just to, to, to dig in a little bit. You see, the elders consider him deserving based on his contribution and his works. But the centurion regarded himself unworthy based on his own status 
as a Gentile. And if Jesus should accede to his request, and we know he did, then it is entirely undeserved. Entirely undeserved. Right? And that is what grace is all about. Sometimes we get a wrong understanding of grace these days. The true worth of grace is experienced when we recognize our unworthiness to receive that grace. Think about it for a moment. Is it not true? But today, when we just stand on this one word grace, it's almost like we deserve this grace. How can you not give grace, oh God? You know that kind? And so I would say, never mistaken, grace that is extended to be grace entitled. Because if grace is entitled, then it's no longer grace. See, so the person here, the centurion, realizes his position. He says, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve any one of these things. I mean, I can build you 20 synagogues and still I will be unworthy. And that, that response was what was amazing to Jesus as we would see later on. So point number one, the approach. Is there a lesson for us? How do we approach our God? How do we approach our King? How do we approach our Master? And as much as we can stand on the promises of God and to say that, you know, we are children of the Most High God and we say, you know, I claim this promise and all that. I mean, fine, you can do all that. But what's the posture of our heart? This is the point I'm trying to drive home. What's our approach? How do we come to Jesus? Point number two, as we know, this whole story is about authority. First, the approach, and second, the authority. The centurion answered, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. Only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. Now, this is a crazy statement where the Jews were concerned. As far as the Jews could understand... They, they considered long-range miracles. Huh? We call this long-range miracles, right? Okay, long-range miracles, extremely rare, totally, very, very difficult. And so the centurion's request would have been considered ridiculous and almost impossible. But he said, just speak the word. Just speak the word. Now, how did he come to that kind of a conclusion that that's going to work? He says, I'm also a man under authority. And if you understand the context of the, the, the centurion being a, a military guy, he merely appealed to what he knew and understood as a soldier. And as a soldier, the first thing you learn is authority. The very first thing you learn is authority and submission. He understood it very well. And so he tells Jesus, look, I'm also a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. Now, if I say go, they're going to go. If I say come, you're going to come. If I tell my servant, do this, he will, he will do it. But the authority is not mine. I'm under the authority of Caesar. Whatever I say, I've been given that right. And that when I decree, it's almost as if Caesar is saying it. I have the backing of the entire Roman Empire. That's how strong I am as a centurion. And so what he's saying is, I am also a man, meaning to say, Jesus, I recognize. You are also someone under the authority, but not of Caesar, but of God. He recognizes that Jesus has, has total authority over everything. And when Jesus would speak, or if Jesus should speak, and when he declares a word, just speak the word. Then he has the entire backing of God, the entire backing of the kingdom of God. He's got a whole power and authority down there. When he speaks to that disease and he speaks to that condition, that condition will have to obey. In the same way, Caesar doesn't have to be present. He just issues a decree and centurion will know how to operate based on that delegated authority. So in the same way, one word from Jesus would be totally, totally enough. He moved as a soldier. He understood that very well. What's amazing about him is that he says that Caesar has all authority. I agree with that. I know that. But he has no authority over sickness and disease. But Jesus, when you speak the word, God's going to move so powerfully 
because you have all authority over everything. See, he understood delegated authority. The question for us is that, do we understand delegated authority? Because after chapter 8 and chapter 9, in chapter 10, verse 1 onwards, Jesus gives that power to the disciples. He says, I'm, I'm going to give this over to you so that you will cast out demons, you will heal the sick, and the blind will see, and the lame shall walk. And you have the same authority. The question is, do we recognize that? Because if we are people of the kingdom, if we are soldiers of the Lord's army, then we operate on the same delegated authority. And I think there's a lesson here for us to learn again. Because here you have someone who says, I'm not worthy, he approaches Jesus, and he experiences the grace of Jesus. And then he says, this is the authority, I recognize this totally. And that is why Jesus was amazed. Jesus was just totally marveling at this one centurion. Would we respond in that same way? Do we live in that same way for Jesus? So point number one was approach. Point number two would be authority. Point number three is amazement. The centurion amazes the king. This man marvels the Messiah. And it's amazing in, in verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled. Now in the New King James, it says marveled. In the NRSV, it's translated amazed. In the NIV, it's astonished. In the HIV, the Hokkien International Version, <laughs> it's the whoa. I mean, you can replace it with whatever you want, but it, it's like Jesus was amazed. He was astonished. Now, what is even more amazing is that whenever this word is used in the New Testament, it always describes the people marveling at the Messiah. Always. The people marveled. Pilate marveled, right? Everyone is astonished with Jesus. But here, it is the Messiah who marveled. And so we have to ask ourselves, what marvels Messiah, and okay, what would amaze Jesus? Of course, we know we read Jesus marveled at the centurion's great faith. There's another record of his marveling, and you find this in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And this time is the opposite end Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. So you can marvel Jesus in one of two ways one, you have great faith, just like the centurion. Two, you have great unbelief, just like the people in his own hometown. And sometimes we look at this and we wonder, oh dear, how can I have that great faith? Do you find yourself asking that question, right? It's like, how do I increase my faith until it becomes great faith like the centurion? Let me suggest to you that, you know, something that is great must be measured in relation to something that is not so great. Is that okay? And I believe Jesus was making a point. There was a reference point. Compared to the people of Israel, the centurion's faith was super great. Now, this may make the centurion sound really good, and I'm not taking any credit away from this man. But if you flip the coin a little bit, and you look at the other side, this doesn't make Israel sound very good. These are God's people. And Jesus was amazed with a person who is not considered God's people. You see, what is expected of God's people is experienced from those not considered God's people. I think that's amazing. When I shared with you about the Syrophoenician woman just now, the Canaanite woman, and she answered that way to say, you know, even the little dogs you know, can, can pick up the crumbs. Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. And once again, it's comparing the Gentiles' faith to that of Israel's faith. Compares the, the hunger, the desperation of someone who desires to know Jesus and to have Him manifest the power of the kingdom compared to God's own people. Now that's, that's amazing. And once again, when we look at something like that, we have to ask ourselves, what about us as God's people? 
do we have great faith? Or will we be used as a reference point for someone else who believes in Jesus? And I want you to note something here, that Matthew's reporting of the healing was almost incidental in the final verse. Many times when we come to this passage, we'll talk about the great faith, uh, the healing by, by remote control, right? And, and at the end, yes, the, the servant got healed. But if you notice the way Matthew reports it, it's just one throwaway line. And that very hour, he was healed. That's it. You know, Matthew was like, yeah, done deal. You know, it's settled. It's like, duh. That was not his main point. Jesus didn't even have to address the sickness. He didn't have to cast out anything. It was like, yeah, this is it. That's, that's what it is. But more than just a lesson on faith for healing, but, and it's a good lesson, by the way, okay? Yeah? Please don't throw it out. More than just a lesson or a showcase of miracles, Matthew had a larger intention. And here's that intention. The intention is to highlight, number one, the condition of Israel to which the Messiah was sent but was rejected. Number two, Matthew was trying to also break the prejudice against Gentiles. And this will open the way for the Gentile mission. Number three, it was also to announce that the good news of the kingdom is not just only for the Jew, but it's for all peoples, both Jew and Gentiles. Think about it a little bit. Because as you listen to me talk about this, you're like, really? I mean, you know, it started with him pleading for his servant. How can you tell me all these things are the lessons that we need to learn? Let me just share this with you. The centurion's faith was considered amazing. I tell you what, the next two verses reveal is even more amazing. And that's why we come to the fourth point. I call it access. Access into the kingdom of God. Because after Jesus declares the centurion's great faith, after he marvels and he says, look, I, I don't even see this in Israel. He continues in verse 11, which we often exclude or ignore whenever we teach this passage. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sometimes when you read the, the Bible, you, you really like, what has this got to do with healing someone who is paralyzed or who is tormented, right? Okay, you mean I must have that kind of great faith before I can get into the kingdom? It doesn't tie up, you see? And I always struggle when, when the Bible doesn't seem to be consistent. It doesn't make sense. You mean I must have great faith before I can get into the kingdom of God? Let's unpack this a little bit. Remember, Matthew is written to the Jews. And the Jews are God's people of the kingdom. And this is why in Luke, the parallel passage, these two verses are not mentioned by Luke because Luke was writing to a Gentile audience. Don't miss this. There's a very strong message that's being delivered to the people of the kingdom. The first point is amazing. He declares, the Gentiles will get into the kingdom. They will have access into the kingdom of God by faith. It's amazing. To the Jewish mind, it's not possible. It is absurd. It's not amazing. It's absurd. And yet Jesus declares this. Just like the centurion, the faith of the Gentile will enable them to be a part of the kingdom. What's even more amazing? The Gentiles will get to sit down and feast with the patriarchs. This is totally amazing. Huh? First, you're not supposed to have contact. Now you're saying they're going to have table fellowship. Not only table fellowship, but with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're kidding me. And not just Table fellowship, you know, is not only coffee and waffles, you know, which would be nice. This sitting down and feasting with the patriarchs is a banquet, is a picture of the wedding feast, is the messianic banquet. This is how amazing this verse is. It's saying the Gentiles will get in. But on the flip side, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. And this is also amazing 
Because no one would believe this in the time of Jesus. They would say, look, come on, we are people of the kingdom. Excuse me. We are children of the kingdom. We are sons and daughters of the kingdom. Are you telling me that as a son, I will be cast out? These are not my words. These are the words of Jesus. I'm just reading the verse to you. He said, no, no, no. Even today in the church, if you mention this, everyone's going to take some stones and, and throw at you. How can this be so? Well, let's ask ourselves, is there consistency in Scripture? Now remember, we just finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Do you think this is consistent? I think so. What do you think? Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, Jesus says, uh, Will you choose the narrow way? This leads to life. You choose the broad way, it's going to lead to death. Right? So life is entering into the kingdom. Death is obviously not in the kingdom, as I have shared with you. He goes on, you better be careful, beware, false prophets. Why false prophets? Because they'll teach you otherwise. They'll tell you once you get in, you can never get out. And they ignore all the other verses about uh, making sure that you have an entrance to the everlasting kingdom. Then he goes on, he says, there's a consequence because not everyone who calls on me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father. Consistent so far? Now these are the words of Jesus. Huh? This is what he's saying. And finally, he says, okay, let's be kingdom-wise, build on the rock, do the things that I tell you to do, because if you don't do it, then you're, you're, you're building on sand, you think you're okay, but when the judgment comes, you ain't going to stand. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out. And this is amazing, because to the Jews, they said, come on, we are covenant people. No way, Jose. It's not going to happen to us. It's amazing. Now, check me out. He says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness. Now, this seems to be a favorite idiom of Matthew because he repeats this a couple of times. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 13, right at the end, this is the parable of the, guess what? Wedding feast. Remember, the Gentiles are going to sit down and hang out with the patriarchs and they get to wine and dine at the feast. They get to recline with the patriarchs in the kingdom of God. Now, this is the parable of the wedding feast. The king says to the servant, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 24, verses 48 onwards. Before that, he talks about faithful servants. Oh, I like that part about faithful servants. I never like to read this part about evil and unfaithful servants. But Jesus says the same thing here. If that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants than to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour that he's not aware of and will cut him in two, I don't know how that's going to happen, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So don't, don't be hypocrites. Don't, don't play play. Don't play church. These words are very, very, very serious. Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. The first two servants were faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. But the third one was not faithful. So he, Jesus says, or at least the master says, cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verse 28. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Speaking to the people of the kingdom. Now, this is the concluding line or the consequence at the end of a teaching where Jesus teaches about the narrow gate and the narrow way. And finally, when you reach that door, the door slams if you're going by the broad way. So is Scripture consistent or is Scripture not consistent? This is what you've got to decide for yourself. You must discern this as you study this. I know what's in our hearts. We all have this one big question. But it's not salvation and entry into the kingdom by faith. And I say, yes, it is. It's always by faith. It's definitely by faith. But let me qualify this for you. Luke does not mention the casting out. Why? Because it's an invitation to Gentiles. 
He's writing to a Gentile audience. He's saying, come on, Gentiles, you can come in if you just believe. It is faith that believes. It's not necessarily, I must have great faith to believe in Jesus Christ. I just believe in the work of Jesus and automatically, by His grace, we will be sons of the kingdom. And I know you're going to say amen with me on that one, right? But you see, Matthew mentions the casting out because he's writing to the sons of the kingdom. More than just faith that believes, now we must also have faith that obeys. There are two different things. There's an expectation that the sons of the kingdom will grow from a faith that believes unto salvation and that grows to a faith that would obey the master and the king. James chapter 1, verse 24 writes this very, very clearly. Abraham was both justified by faith as well as by works. So can you see that tension again? That again, it is not just a point of salvation, that we just believe and then we are saved. There's a point of salvation, but what comes after that is now the process of salvation. That as you believe, would you obey? If you believe, will you serve the king? And so from this one lesson or one passage, we see these four points. Many things that we can learn at different levels. One, how do we approach our king? Do we approach him presumptuously? I think not. Right? We approach with humility and always with reverence. Do we believe in his authority as the centurion did? How do we amaze our master and our God? What would make him marvel? Would our faith be considered a great faith in a way that the centurion was seen as one having great faith? But more importantly than just a lesson about healing, physical healing, as, as significant as that might be, Jesus switches that scene and talks about access into the kingdom of God. Four very important points for you to ponder. Not quite as straightforward, but I submit this to you. But allow me to give you a bonus fifth point. And this is really conjecture on my part, and so you can, you can challenge me on this one. And the fifth point is what I call allegiance. Allegiance. I, I don't know what happened to the centurion after this story. We don't hear about him. Something that it might have been Cornelius. I don't know. No one knows. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know what happened to his servant. All I know is this was the man who marveled the Messiah. My question is this, as I ask, was his great faith only for the healing of the servant? If so, good, very nice, good story. We say praise God, hallelujah. But how about entry into the kingdom? Would you agree with me that you can be healed and not get into the kingdom? Right? I mean, if, we can, if God can heal Gentiles, they don't even have to believe in the first place, right? God's grace extends to everyone. And so healing is not the, the main thing per se. The healing only demonstrates the manifested authority of the kingdom of God. That's all there is. It's not about the healing only. How about the entry into the kingdom? This is what I think. All I know about the centurion is that he was a professional soldier who understood authority and he submitted to the higher purposes of the Roman Empire. This is what I would like to believe, that that day, that day, that moment after that, he switched allegiance to a greater Caesar or a greater king. He said, Lord Jesus, I mean, you are the one with all authority. I mean, I believe in the authority of Caesar and the Roman Empire. And if I can, if I can move in the authority, I mean, can you imagine how my life would change if I switch my allegiance to you? Possibly. Could it, is it possible that he switched allegiance that day to, to, to a greater king and to a greater purpose of the kingdom of God? And with Jesus or praising him, he not only became a son of the kingdom. Jesus says, right, many of these, like this Gentile, they will take the place and become sons of the kingdom when the original sons, those who are in there so far, are being cast out. He not only became a son of the kingdom, I think he also became a fellow soldier of the Lord's army. Very much like Archippus in Philemon 2. This professional soldier knows what it means to serve the king and a greater kingdom. It might have cost him his military career. 
Think about that, right? There's a cost. Previously, we said that he would have to perform certain pagan religious rites. He would have to pledge his oath to Caesar. No king, but Caesar. But now suddenly he says, I'm not going to do that anymore. Because I, I believe in Jesus. Maybe he got kicked out of the Roman army. He lost his entire pension. But that would have been fine. Because now he serves a greater king. Amen? His allegiance is to the kingdom of God. I'm reminded of the words in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul, charging Timothy, says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. See, if, if you consider yourself a soldier of the Lord's army. And that's what our keepers is all about. We are, we are fellow soldiers. Then the question is, are we entangled with the things of this life that keeps us from serving the purposes of God, from fulfilling our kingdom assignments wherever He will send us, however He would assign us? I would love to have great faith like, like the centurion, but, but great faith is not just to receive our things. Would you agree? Great faith is also for great faithfulness. Great faith must result in great faithfulness. I mean, what's the point of me believing so much about Jesus, but when He tells me to do something, I don't do? What's the point about believing in Jesus for all these things, but when He, when he assigns me somewhere, I say, I don't want. Then it runs counter to everything the centurion has said to Jesus. He says, look, come on, I, I, I know what authority is all about, right? When I say go, the guy goes. When I say come, the person comes. Right? When I say do this, my servant will do this. So if he has great faith in the authority of Jesus, then his great faith would translate into great faithfulness. Because when he switches allegiance, Jesus says go. What do you think he will do? He will go. And Jesus says, come. He will come. Everything changed that day, I believe. I don't know what it resulted in. Maybe he built more synagogues for the people of God. I don't know. Maybe he provided for orphans and widows. Maybe he returned to Rome and he was part of the church that was planted for the Romans. I mean, who knows? But whatever it was, I believe it is his obedience and his faithfulness that ensures his readiness and his entry into the kingdom of God. That's what great faith is for. Otherwise, we believe for what? What are we believing in? Who are we believing in? And so five points for you to think about. How would you approach Jesus? Thank God for His amazing grace, but may we always approach Him with humility and reverence and not presumptuous entitlement. There's a huge difference uh, that when we believe and we say, Lord, we know you can do it, you know, versus, you know, you can do it, you better do this for me. He's God. We are not. Second, about authority. We declare the power and the authority of Jesus. Do we remember that we operate in that same authority in His name? Do you need healing? If you need healing tonight, even if you're listening, I want you to believe because there's authority in the name of Jesus. And as we declare the word of the kingdom, as we pray after this, I praise God for remote control healing, long-range healing, amen? If you're seated here, be healed in Jesus' name. If you're listening in, I say be healed in Jesus' name. Amazement. We are sons and daughters of the kingdom. The question is, do we have great faith in a great God? When was the last time we marveled our Messiah? <laughs> right? You know, can we just say, Lord, you can do this. You know, let me move. I don't understand it, but, but can, I, can I just take you at your word? And you can have great faith because you have a great God. If you don't have a great God, great faith is also no use. How about access? We presume our automatic entry into the kingdom. Let's listen to the words of Jesus. Are we faithful to do the Father's will? Are we faithful to move on our kingdom assignments? We revel in our kingdom status, but do we have prejudices against others? 
and we raise barriers to their entry into the kingdom of God. We must be careful as we think about these things. And finally, allegiance. Do we live as ones under the authority of Jesus? Do you realize it's very easy to proclaim His authority? Eh? Can't try and cast out things. Eh? But we don't live under the authority of Jesus that if He says go, we go. If He says come, we come. We must obey. Are we prepared to live for Jesus as centurions are prepared to live for Caesar? Let's pray together. Father, nine verses, O oh Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is always revealed through the declaration of the word of the kingdom. So many lessons at so many levels. Lord, we praise God, Lord, for the great faith of the centurion. We, Lord, we thank you for your power and your authority in the name of Jesus to heal anyone in any place that there's no barrier physically, geographically, ethnically, nothing at all. In the name of Jesus, all things are possible. And yet, Lord, it's more than just a lesson on physical healing. For we know, Lord, that this earthly body is only for this season and this age, O oh Lord. There is an eternal kingdom that we live for that we must not forget. And I pray, Lord, may our faith be encouraged this evening. May we be stirred, O oh Lord, to live for you and to know that nothing is impossible for you, that great faith, Lord, must result in great faithfulness. How wonderful, Lord, that there's nothing we can do. We are undeserving, that we can just declare, believe the name of Jesus and we are sons and daughters of the kingdom. But Lord, you desire that we would grow, that we would mature, that we would be faithful. And Lord, may we not be presumptuous, may we not be complacent as those who have, who have missed it, Lord. Lord, far be it for ourselves to be arrogant and say that we will never miss it. Help us, Lord. We know we are weak, but we know that you are strong. We know we don't know how to do it. We fail time and again. But we thank you, Lord, for your grace that each time when we return to you, you always restore us. And so help us that we can also help others. And Lord, help us, Lord, that we will be true sons and daughters of the kingdom to live for you and to bring you glory and to bring you joy. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.